So, some of you ladies know who he is. I am on. Well, okay, thanks, Linz. In a moment, I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and Book of Romans, little portions. Let's pray. Father, help me this morning unfold the majesty of your holiness and the terribleness of your wrath. Give us ears to hear so that we will love the glory of who you are is revealed in Jesus Christ and rejoice for all eternity in him. Amen. This is the eighth week in the series God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And so it brings us this morning now to the sobering subject of God's judgment against sinners. I'm going to read just a couple portions from Genesis 2 and 3, and, and as I said, from Romans. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The whole creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. One trespass led to condemnation 
for all men. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word to us. The last time in our journey through this redemptive history, we encountered the fall of man in the garden of Eden, where all humanity, this one nature represented in billions of persons, fell into sin, into sin nature. And God promised, if you eat, death. And later revelation throughout the Scripture reveals that there was more than physical death and a separation temporarily from the body that was involved in God declaring, the day you eat, you shall surely die. But there's an ultimate death. There's a second death. There's an eternal punishment. Or hell. And that's our topic. But first, okay, why talk about such a thing? Well, I have a whole sermon on God's judgment of sinners. Two reasons. First, because it's so clear in the Scripture. And as a pastor-teacher, I'm accountable to unfold the whole counsel of God. How much more that which is one of the most clear and ubiquitous topics in Scripture, and particularly in the preaching and the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10, just a couple examples, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but fear Him, it's God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And he declared in Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the writer to the Hebrews declares in chapter 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, my first reason is I do not see how any pastor could withhold and neglect ever teaching 
on the subject of the eternal judgment that is to come. The second reason why to preach on God's righteous wrath is that it reveals a part of God's character, of who He is. And thus it helps those who are being redeemed love Him for who He is. See, if hearing the Scripture on its clarity about God's judgment upon sinners, if that makes it harder for us to love God, then maybe we are loving a figment of our imagination when we say we love God and not loving the real God, the true God, the God of Scripture. See, if we're to grow and to go deeper into the mysteries of God and be wowed by Him, to adore Him, to, 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 to find a deeper love and joy in Him, then we must know more and more the true God. I mean, just think about it. How will you sing truly and from the heart the praises of God's mercy to me, a sinner, if you don't know the terrible holiness of His wrath. Hell is a sobering subject. And therefore, it is, it is best to go slowly, step by step, in order to put it in its larger context. And so that's my endeavor. There are four steps I want to take you through. Here they are, and then we'll go through them. First, God is perfectly content and holy in Himself. And in creation, He does everything ultimately for His glory to be expanded. Secondly, it's great news for the saints. That means that God delights in all who delight in Him, in His glory. That's the second step. The third step is His glory, which is our joy as Jesus' people, is so precious that every creature who comes against His glory, God must respond to uphold the integrity and beauty of His glory with a perfect justice. Which brings us to step four. We are so much more sinful than we can even imagine. We have so profaned the glory of God, all of us. So let's go through. Again, step one. We have seen this in this series. That God's essence, His glory, His righteousness, first and foremost, consists in His fully delighting in His own worth. His own glory. He is the Holy Trinity. God's affection and joy and loyalty 
leads his every action to uphold his glory, his value, his goodness, and his worth. That's why when we open up the scripture, we read phrases like this all over the place. For my name's sake. For my glory. He forgives us our sins for His name's sake. I will not give my glory to another. And on and on. So step one is God's righteousness, His sinlessness consists in His love for Himself. His glory. And so step two. He creates in God's great delight is in those who see and view His glory and delight in it. Psalm 147 puts it this way. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is God's pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him in those who hope in His steadfast love. Paul put it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1.10. There's a day when the Savior who was killed for us and raised from the dead, He is left. He is ascended. But He's coming back and Paul says, when He comes on that day, it is for this purpose. In order to be glorified in the saints. And marvel that. That's a joyful marveling. Among all who have believed. That's step two. That's God's great delight. Step three. Since God uses His omnipotence, His great power and His will for the benefit of all who delight in Him, then He must direct the full force of that power against people going in the opposite direction. Against those who don't see Him as the treasure He is, as the goodness He is, as the river of pure delight and pure being that He is. God cannot, and I, I use the word can, not on purpose. He cannot Remain indifferent. In other words, eh, don't really care too much about those who come against me in my person and my glory. If God only half-heartedly opposed scorners instead of perfectly in a just way, then it would imply that His glory which is what is offended, 
It implies that His glory, the essence of His being, is really not that important. It's not that great. You see, the flip side of God's eternal joy in God and the Holy Trinity and creating and thus glorifying Himself in the saints who, who have come alive and see His glory, He's glorified in that. And that's on one side of the coin. Absolutely. The other side of that coin in way, the way that God glorifies Himself is that He opposes all who live and are at the core of the being unchanged and impenitent. Uh, you're not that great. Thank you, I will go my own way. I don't trust you, oh God. God is upholding the value of His glory in His opposing perfectly in perfect justice all who oppose Him. And thus, God's righteous opposition to those who belittle His glory in it, He is showing that He does honor His worth above all things. And thus, he is upholding the essence of the object of our joy. He will not let it be lessened. God and His glory is the joy to which all the saints are being saved unto. Just let me use a, a, a silly worldly analogy. Picture a balloon that's full. And the air inside that balloon is the glory of God. The object of our eternal joy. And now picture God saying, yeah, but... There's so many who do not like my glory, my joy, who I am, and they sin against me again and again. But let's just, I'm just going to let bygones be bygones and sweep that under the rug. And every time he does, a little bit more of that air, his glory leaks out of that balloon and it shrinks and it shrinks and it shrinks. And the joy of the saints would shrink and shrink and shrink. See, the bottom line is that God could not be loving to those who seek Him if He did not vent the power of His wrath against impenitent, hard-hearted, stubborn, Sinners. This is what it means to say God is first and foremost for Himself, for the balloon. So that's why He can be for us. 
God's love and His wrath are simply two ways in which He makes it clear that He fully honors His name, His essence, His glory. And here we are, we walk in the shadow of death, all of us in this room. And before our death is coming, there's a measure of God's mercy that He's constantly showing in His patience towards the good and towards the evil. Paul put it this way, in Acts of the Apostles, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain for their crops on the just and on the unjust. And Paul writes in Romans 2, verses 2 to 5, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. This litany of ungodliness that he laid out. And then he goes on. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness to you right now? and His forbearance, and His patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is patient. It's merciful that at this moment through medicine I'm not in pain with a root canal. I have a family He's patient with all. Christian, non-Christian, every religion, atheists. But those who misinterpret that mercy, that patience, who misinterpret my IRA, my retirement account is doing well. I look forward to that. I have a great job. I have a beautiful wife whom I love. Children who I like and love. Those who misinterpret it, Paul says, are storing up wrath on the day of wrath which is coming. Death will come and according to the writer to the Hebrews, it marks the time when God's patience with sinners will end. When he says, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes 
judgment. So now let's ponder this term used so much in the Scripture and in the New Testament. Wrath. I want you to turn to Romans 12, 19 for a moment. Paul writes, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it or leave room for the wrath of God. Because it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So wrath of God is defined in this verse as vengeance. Vengeance is mine. So here, wrath is connected with God's response to something that deserves vengeance. That's what the word vengeance means, a response to. We make movies about the guy going haywire when his family's murdered, right? Okay, vengeance, and you cheer for him. Injustice has happened. And, okay. and that's all imperfect with us sinners. But God will respond with vengeance. And that, that's why it goes on to say very clearly, Paul says in the text, I, God, will repay. So God's wrath here is treated as a repayment to persons for something that they have done. Something they deserve. Now, that English word wrath in the New Testament, in the Greek, is the word orge. And it's a word that can be translated anger, or wrath, or indignation. So you... you, you you put and unpack what Paul does here in Romans 12, 19, and it means God's settled anger towards sin, which is expressed in a repayment, which is appropriate vengeance on guilty sinners. Now, you flip back to chapter 2 of Romans for a moment. Chapter 2 of Romans in verse 8. Paul says, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay, wrath, again there is the word orge. And fury, thumos. Now those two words throughout the Bible and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, wrath and fury, wrath and fury, go together. They're put side by side over a hundred times in the Scripture. Now the, the New Testament Greek scholar from about a hundred years ago, A.T. Robertson, on these words, writes this, quote, God's anger, thumos, 
is His vehement fury or boiling rage. His wrath, or gay, is His settled indignation or His settled anger. And he goes on. In God's anger, the emphasis falls on the emotional, the boiling intensity of it. And in God's wrath, the emphasis falls on the controlled, settled, considered direction and focus of its application. End quote. Wrath and fury. There's no real hard line between them. See, God's anger, the point is, it's never out of control. It's never out of control of His wisdom and His perfect righteousness. His wrath is never cool and indifferent or impersonal. It's always perfectly, wisely, directed. You see, hell, eternal condemnation, wrath and fury is very personal. That would not have been a stunning statement. 300 years ago in the church. It is today. Because the evangelical church world has a doctrine that's almost in, I don't know what, high percentage of people's heads. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Created hell for the devil and his angels and somehow people end up there. They send themselves there. So the idea that God is angry with sinners, no, 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 He's just angry with sin. He loves the sinner. This doctrine, the way I just stated it there, is so profoundly unbiblical. The glory of being saved, as we talk and ought, as the New Testament does, and I read this morning, He's coming to be glorified in the saints on that day. What is laid up for us, Paul says, is unimaginable love and kindness toward us. We are saved to something. What are we saved from? We're saved from God. From God's wrath. So to repay, as he says in Romans 12, repay and vengeance there, make it clear that God's wrath is a response to sin. It is not a response on innocent persons. You don't have to worry about that. God will be perfectly 
We love this word, right? Fair. Perfectly just. Meticulously so. So that His repayment will be, in the long run, viewed as it should be. Suitable. Vengeance. You can be absolutely positive it will not be more than is deserved. And it will not be less than is deserved. It will be perfect justice. We are the reflection of God as His image, and we do this, and it ref we have justice systems, and all human history has had it in the village or in the state of California. And we want justice because the state represents the people. It represents the people's right to be free and to pursue happiness. Therefore, those who would say, uh-uh, I'll come against your right to pursue happiness, we make laws against that. We got laws against breaking into someone's home and blowing their brains off with a shotgun and stealing all their stuff. Because if we just let that go on, they are depriving others of their right to pursue happiness. And that's unjust. So we make laws with commencement punishment. It's equivalent to the crime. We make laws like you can only park for 20 minutes here in downtown Los Angeles. People are doing business all day long. And others want the freedom to be able to do their business as a courier or whatever else in downtown. So if you're so arrogant, you say, I don't care. I'm going to park there all day long. I don't care about anyone else's freedom to do that. Well, we're going to mete out punishment and put you in front of a firing squad. No, we're not going to do that. Because that wouldn't be just punishment. You seek to deprive from the lawbreaker an equivalent of what they have deprived of others. So we, that's why you're always trying to figure it out. How much is that going to hurt? $65. Okay. So someone who commits first degree premeditated murder, penalty, found guilty, $65, pay the bailiff on the way out. We would all go up in arms. We, we would scream that California would protest. The glory of the state is unjust. Now there, death or life imprisonment. Okay, that's essentially talking about what's just. The penalty must be equivalent to the crime in order for the state of California to maintain its glory, that is, its goodness towards the people. So what we've seen are three steps. God does everything for His glory. Step two, He therefore delights in all who delight in His glory as their joy. Step three, to uphold the integrity and the beauty and the worth of that joy, of that glory. He must, with the full force of his omnipotence, come against those who belittle it unrepentantly. Which brings us to step four. We all have sinned, come against God's glory, 
in the worst possible way. Unbelief is spitting into the face of God's glory, of His person, of who He is and promises to be. And it deserves an equivalent severe punishment. One that is equivalent to the enormity of that crime. And eternal condemnation. Gehenna, New Testament word translated hell is what the Bible says is equivalent to not merely actions, but to the nature of an unredeemed sinner's heart. See, the greatest insult that we human beings, if you think about it, I think you'll probably agree with me. The greatest insult is for someone to say, I don't trust you. Now, it's greater or lesser to the degree of how big you are to that person in a relationship. For instance, if I'm just walking down the street and some stranger whom I've never met and doesn't know me from Adam looks at me and says, I don't trust you, it doesn't bother me in the least. He doesn't know me. Why would I care? If I go home and my wife looks at me and concerning the, as a sinner, as a broken person, but says at the very core of my being about me, I just don't trust you, Joe. I promise you, that will be very difficult to get over. My anger and the insult, and I am a sinful, not a perfect being, like God. And God, in relationship to every person that He created, is the greatest and the most worthy and trustworthy of all beings. Therefore, for those who persist in what we saw last time in the Garden of Eden, you're right. God really isn't out for my good. He knows I will be equal with Him and there's a joy and a happiness and I want. God's been lying to me. I don't trust Him. And she ate. For those who do that, persist in that and in that state, It must be matched 
with an equivalent enormity. The eternal God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Complete essence of being and happiness and contentment and trustworthiness and beauty and wisdom then creates to share it. And then one or two or 40 billion respond to Him. I don't trust you. You are not good. You are not beautiful. I will have none of it. What we miss as human beings, and even we struggle with it, that's why we need to renew our minds with what the Scripture says about us. We miss the depth of our sin because our, our rebellion, our fallenness, is, it's total. Total. Paul declared it this way in Romans 3. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've spurned that glory. That means in everything we do, total, in every act we make, it's sinful to some degree, it's broken. Whatever is not from a heart of trust in Him is sin. Paul declares. Paul says, nothing good dwells in my natural nature that I was born in. Nothing good dwells in it. And you say, well, what are you talking about? Christian people of every religion, of non-religion, we do good things. We feel for one another. We give to charities. We help a neighbor. What do you mean nothing good? Okay, this is what I mean. I'm not saying that all those reflections of goodness aren't real and true. What the New Testament is declaring is that we are all sinful before God. And it's like a piano that is out of tune. It's just out of tune. So yes, we can sit down at the piano and, and put... Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata in front of us and look at the notes and play the notes even perfectly as we should and not miss a key. But something doesn't sound right. Yes, we play all the things of help your neighbor and we should, but we're all broken 
piano. In other words, we are all dead to God, separated from Him. As Paul says in the New Testament, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. As he says in Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh cannot play the piano and make it sound good. Cannot submit to God. And thus, our sinful nature is deserving of eternal punishment. That's why in Ephesians 2, Paul concluded that section. We are all, by nature, children of wrath. And you remember when Paul founded the church in Thessalonia on that missionary journey? It was another one of those. After a few weeks, he was so hated by so many, they would persecute him and chase him. He finally chased him out of town. He thought, it's best that I leave. I'll go to another city. And they did the same thing there. And he finally goes up to Greece. And he wrote a letter back to them, the first epistle. And then, this is all within 12 months of the gospel he preached. And he's going to write a very another second, very short letter. And I want you to think about what's important to Paul as he puts this in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, starting with verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, not now necessarily, that's what's implied here, and to grant relief to you as well as to us. Well, when, Paul? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when Jesus comes on that day. God's eternal wrath corresponds to the severity of finite Creatures spurning, turning away from, spitting upon and belittling the goodness and the glory of the eternal Creator. Now, 
when we think of God in our day and age, so many people think, well, if God were loving, there would never be punishment. Well, if the state of California were loving, there will be punishment. I wonder how we think that way. See, God's love and the future judgment that is coming are not in contradiction. Now, when it comes to an individual person, you mean God is pouring out wrath forever and God loves it? No, He doesn't love them. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what the Bible teaches. But who God is, there is nothing in the reality of eternal damnation that is contrary to God's loving mercy. The problem is our philosophy of man-centeredness has everything screwed up. If we would be able to just put aside the unbiblical creature-centered philosophy that says, well, God's love means He looks at me and He really just makes much of me. I mean, I got feelings and I got desires and I know I live this way and that way and I know I don't like His commands here and that, but if He really loved me, He would understand that and then just coddle me. Love defined as how much do you put me at the center of your universe, God? If we would just get rid of such a profoundly unbiblical idea and understand at the very core of redemption, the very core of God's chesed, His mercy, His loving kindness toward us, it is this, and it's much better than that other. It is God causing us to make much of Him forever, miraculously, by His Spirit. And if we get that, then we'll understand that God can remain loving only by opposing with the full force of His love for His own glory all of those who oppose Him by rejecting his glory. So in short, the infinite happiness of God, His glory, is the very foundation of our happiness forever. That is, God can be for us because and only when he is first and foremost for himself. The only way God can truly love us benevolently, eternally, work for our good forever and ever, is that he holds the object of our joy in the highest possible esteem which happens to be himself. 
if God did not mete out justice for an eternal offense, he would be belittling himself, his glory. And thus belittling our hope for an eternal joy and a contentment in him. Now, get a few minutes. I mean, I, I, I could read 50 passages. I'm just going to read four. Okay? Because of what I've said, that's why we read these texts. Daniel chapter 2, verse 2 declares, And many of those who sleep in the dust have died physically. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's a bodily resurrection coming. They shall awake. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's why our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus, says or said in Mark chapter 9, 43 to 48. And its warnings are loving. They're loving. Don't run into that street, my dear four-year-old. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The apostle of love, John, the son of Zebedee, records in Revelation 14, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on the forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast. Or in Revelation 6, the Apostle John records, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves 
and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of Jesus, the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? And in Revelation 20, John records, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God's wrath is perfectly just and necessary in order to display His worth and His glory in those who refuse to enjoy His eternal goodness through Jesus Christ. And therefore, every person who clings to Christ, who comes into Christ, they will exalt in God's glory throughout eternity. Now, as sobering as eternal condemnation is, we should rejoice. We should rejoice in all that God does in order to keep His glory from being defamed and devalued. That is what the Apostle Paul rejoices in in 2 Corinthians 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when Jesus comes on that day in order to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so as I'm closing here, let me say at least this this morning then. This final judgment that is coming, that every one of us deserve, it is escapable now in this life. No one has to spend eternity under God's wrath. Because, as we're going to see next week, God sent His Son. He sent His Son to step in between and absorb the wrath of God against every person who will take refuge in Him. So the cry goes out. What must I do to be saved? Believe. 
believe into Jesus Christ and then publicly proclaim your faith through the biblical mode of water baptism and entrance into his church and you will be saved. Now in a moment, we're going to be taking Holy Communion. And all of us baptized believers will take, will hold, and we're going to wait and pray over it together. But as we come to that table, oh, this sermon is so relevant to what Jesus was talking about and what he was doing. And so I want us, therefore, I'm going to read one last text to meditate our coming to the table of the Lord together. Listen. To Galatians 3.13 with trembling wonder as a believer and joy, faith, and thankfulness. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by himself becoming a curse for us as it is written cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree we're gonna therefore remember through eating his body and drinking his blood, what he was going to do and did that next day. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son. You sent him in order to bear the curse of your wrath for everybody who will come to him. For everyone who cherishes your glory and cherishes the shed blood of Jesus which upheld your glory in saving and justifying sinners like us. Father, we thank you to the glory of your holy name. Amen.